Sean. Let me see. Look up. Look straight at me, Sean. Let's see if I can see any of that. Let's see a big smile, Sean. This big crowd, mostly in blue, and he swings. It's a high fly ball to deep left field. It is a way out and gone. And the Dodgers win a big game. The Dodgers have made another movement today in their roller coaster season. Well, after a year of instability, both on and off the field, the Fox Group finally got something right in the front office. And today, the Dodgers hired former Orioles assistant general manager Kevin Malone. The 71-year-old Lasorda says the GM job is for a younger man. My wife felt that uh, I should uh, not be doing it, so I'm handing the baton to uh, Kevin. (laughs) Go, Sean! Run, run, run! As Tommy would say... I feel truly blessed to be a Los Angeles Dodger. Kevin became general manager of the Dodgers in August 1998. He was gone probably 250, 270 days out of the year and worked overtime and, you know, family became second. It's difficult because you're alone a lot. I would have liked to have someone around. I was lonely and I was raising two kids by myself. As far as interacting, you know, on a daily basis with the kids, he wasn't, he wasn't there. Sean growing up was, um, was an amazing kid. He was funny, uh, fun-loving. Uh, Sean and I were not that close growing up. I feel like we were always around hanging out, but on a deeper level, I didn't really know him as well as I should. When I first met him, he, he was innocent. You know, he had, he had not got that far. Um, but you could tell that there was something he was searching. There was something he, he was looking for. I think we were really close, especially with Kevin being on the road a lot. We kind of were alone a lot. He did karate. He did um, basketball, football, golf. He did all the different sports. He enjoyed them. To be completely honest, what it was like when Sean was born was I was basically focused on other things. I had things to do. I had players to scout. I had a team to help win a championship. I felt like uh, there was more important things. Unfortunately, when I say that now, it makes me sick to my stomach. I think back about being gone all the time and really not thinking much about it, thinking I was a good father because I was providing and giving them all the things that they wanted. I didn't realize until much later that what they wanted was me. Sean hid his lifestyle very well. Um, It wasn't until the very end when things started, you know, becoming more noticeable. Sean started getting into drugs probably in high school. I I knew he was up to something. I think the norm for most people is to start exploring uh, with substances and alcohol. There's a lot of pressure to, you know, fit in. But I think overall the norm is to start dabbling and start experimenting and just kind of see what else is out there beyond the family household. When he got to USC, it was full-blown chaos. These are kids that had resources, had money. They had all the drugs, all the alcohol. So it escalated. How can we just do anything to not be with ourselves? Because I'm not comfortable just being, you know, me. The more that 
you do this, the greater your tolerance gets. And so that means you have to take more and more in order to achieve the same desired effect. That's why it's so dangerous is because you're chasing a feeling. And and I believe that the, the feeling that you're chasing is actually you're seeking a spiritual experience. There's got to be something more going on. I don't think Kevin wanted to talk because... I'm guessing that's my words, but there there has to be some shame. Um, I know in my friendship with Kevin, I I know how much he cared about Sean. And I know how much he, uh, how much he loved him, how guilty he felt being gone when he was in baseball. And uh, I'm sure he put a lot of the blame on himself, the fact uh, that he was struggling with an addiction and, and didn't want anybody to know. So much created a, a loneliness or a void in his life that I wasn't uh, the father that he needed. He totaled four cars uh, in the span of about four, five years maybe, but never had a scratch on him. So he felt he was invincible, which is part of the problem with him. Being like me, living on the edge, feeling he was invincible, he was living like he didn't care if he died or not. taken some drugs and I didn't want him driving because I didn't want him to hurt anybody else and so he quickly grabbed the keys and started to run out of the house and Kevin ran after him. I knew he had some drugs on him but I knew he had a lot of drugs in his car and he was leaving and I I wasn't ready to deal with that. He runs out the door and he grabbed his keys and I knew he was taking off so I chased him outside on the driveway. I said give me those keys, give me the drugs if you've got any on you and we wrestled and it was wrestling back and forth and he ended up throwing me on the ground. aside like that and and go on for drugs. So I got a call from mom. She said, hey, Pisa, you need to come and say goodbye to Sean. We don't know if he will make it through the night. So I I flew back um, and I went to the hospital. And um, he was at St. John's. Um, and he was just, you know, 
going in some way. I'll never forget walking into the room and, and seeing Sean laying in the bed with, with the tubes and, and lifeless. I believe they said once I got there that, you know, he had done drugs and he was unconscious and not breathing for a long time so that there was a loss of oxygen to his brain. They told me, you know, that Sean uh, probably's not going to make it. When I first saw Sean in the hospital, it's one of those things as a dad where I've got my little girl with me and my first thought is, wow, was she ready to see this? I didn't realize it was going to look this bad. I wanted to cry. It was just so weird. I didn't, I wasn't used to that. When I saw him, it was just like, it looked like he was dead. So I went out into the waiting room and just started praying. I started calling every man of God, woman of God I knew, texting, emailing, pray for my son. The words were that we don't think he's going to make it. Something's wrong. He's dying. Everything's shutting down. He's got pneumonia. All his vitals, they're, 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 they're shutting down. We don't think we can save him. We don't know what's going to happen. It doesn't look good. So I'm not going to stay in there and watch him die. It was kind of surreal and that I was doing something I had had assumed at one point I'd have to do. These are MRIs obtained on Sean from July 6, 2013 at St. John's Hospital. So these are all little strokes in his brain. These changes are consistent with what we would call an anoxic brain injury. At the time Sean was in the hospital, he was the USC that kid that overdosed. And across the hallway, there was a UCLA kid that had overdosed. And um, it's unpleasant. When patients die, I don't sleep that night. When we admitted Sean almost 30 days after his injury, he was still in a state of profound impaired consciousness. And he was completely paralyzed. He was 100% dependent on others for his care. First, you just kind of go blank when they tell you that, that your son is gone. And my thought was, he doesn't know the Lord. I can't imagine my son in hell. I mean, that's what really broke my heart, was that there was no hope for him if he couldn't come out of that. So my prayer then became, God, if he knows you, take him home if he doesn't know you. I felt like I was doing a funeral every month at least, um, sometimes several, because things just end suddenly, unexpectedly. They couldn't understand why 
why God could do uh, do that. Uh, you knew there was there was something ahead for him, but all of a sudden, you saw the end just right there in front of you. And that was really difficult uh, for me and to watch family uh, that you'd known that protected him, that loved him that much, uh, that they had come to the end of his life. Sean, let me see. Look up. Look straight at me, Sean. Let's see if I can see any of that. Let's see a big smile, Sean. I remember Kevin praying that evening. And we're beside his bed. There was there was a tear that that came out of, of Sean's eye. Now you have to understand he's lifeless. The doctors are saying he's brain dead. There there is there's nothing there. He's he's gone. He started crying, and it was weird. And I thought he wasn't supposed to do anything. Then all of a sudden the tears were coming out of his eyes, and I was just like. Any, any, uh, any cough, any blinking of the eye, you know, there's textbooks that are going to say it's just, it's just reactionary. I felt that evening he was, he was communicating to his dad because his dad was so broken and he loved him so, so much. And he was just crying out, just saying, God, just save my son. Just, just, just save my son. was a tech in there with Sean. They would talk to him just like he was, you know, there and able to speak back. And that's what happened. He spoke back to her, scared her to death. at the same time. My parents said I was in a coma for two months. I didn't think I was broken, but I was back in the day. I thought there was a God, but I didn't have a relationship with him. There's many wonderful people that we know that have lost their children to drugs. Um, so are we deserving? No. God just um, blessed our life to give us Sean back. I saw him literally gone, gone. All I could hear were machines. And to see him smile, walk, finish school, and go to church with us, I can't believe that he's here. I want to say thank you for my dad saving me when I was not breathing, and my mom for fighting so hard to, to just be with me every day. 
Amazing. What'd you have done if I died? I probably would have died too. You know, the physical story of Sean is great, but I, I think the spiritual story is so much greater and, and way, way more important. Um, because we're all going to die. That's a guarantee. Now, spiritual life isn't a guarantee. Because once you die, it's over. The question is, is what comes after? And can you be sure of that? Did you see heaven? No, I did not. That would cool to see it, though. If I didn't. Well, a lot of people um, want to know what he saw in a coma, or if he saw God, or if he went to heaven. And really, Sean saw nothing. God came down to Sean. I was in the hospital. I was with my dad. And then I asked for forgiveness of my sins. And asked Jesus Christ to come to my life. I was so close. The guy was amazing. That was like, he was my friend. Jesus is so different from all these other gods or religions. Um, one, the fact that he reached down and lowered himself and suffered for my sake. And the other big one is that he says, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise from the dead. And then he pulled it off. And you think about the disciples who, I mean, they they ran away when he was crucified. But then when they saw that he literally rose from the dead, now suddenly these men are filled with this courage like he really does have power over death. So, I, so it's great that Sean's walking around laughing. But it's far, far more important to me that he knows God now. And he's going to be with him forever. You know, from what happens from here on in is is fine with me. I can deal with because I know where he's going. I never thought we'd be doing this. A year and a half, two years ago. Yep. I thank God that we uh, can play catch again. Yep. Right here. So I chose to show this on Father's Day because um, you see the impact that uh, that dads have on their families. Sometimes the impact is good. Sometimes the impact isn't so good. But we can always pray and we can always ask God to overcome um, our insufficiency. And see, I want to talk to you real quickly as we finish up today about how you live your life. Because 
Sean thought that his life had no consequences, but you saw it didn't just affect him. It affected him greatly, almost cost him his life. He almost cost him his eternity in hell, um, but it also has a rippling effect and it, it affects everyone around him. So I, I, I just want to give you three things, uh, two sets of three. First one is I'm just going to tell you about what, how your life, how you live your life, what it influences. First of all, it influences consequences on this earth. The Bible is very clear. It says, you will reap what you sow. And, and it's a law of agriculture, but it's an all, also a law in just life. Um, whatever you put into your life is what you're going to get out. Whatever you put into your spiritual life is what you're going to get out. And, and so if you, if you are genuine, genuine, generally kind to other people, more than likely people are going to be kind to you. If you are a jerk to other people, people are probably going to be a jerk back to you. You're going to reap what you sow. Um, and, and what I want you to realize is there's different consequences to different sins. All right. So let me give you an example. Let's, let's say you're a youth pastor and you get caught for speeding. You can probably still be a youth pastor. If you're a youth pastor and you smoke weed with one of your students, you're no longer going to be a youth pastor unless you're in Colorado and then they have different rules up there. I don't know about that. Uh, but, but what I want you to realize is different sins result in different consequences. Does that make sense? So if you agree that different behaviors have different consequences, say we agree. Man, can you take some of the bass out? Because it's killing me up here. I don't know about y'all, but it sounds like I'm in a barrel. So first of all, your how you live influences um, the consequences of the earth. Second, it influences the rewards in heaven. The Bible is very clear that that um, if you're a child of God, you will stand before God. You won't have to pay the price for your sins because Jesus already did that if you're a Christian. But the Bible says that you will stand before God and you will give an account for everything you did. And you will either get rewards or you'll lose rewards based on how you live this life. Now, if you're a non-Christian, you, you go to the great white throne of judgment and the Bible says, um, if your name is not found written in the book of life, you're cast into the lake of fire. So, so there are consequences in heaven based on how you live your life. And then there's also punishment in hell. The way you live your life is going to determine whether you go to hell. And if you don't accept Jesus, you're going to hell. That's what the Bible says. Those aren't my words, but you also, there are degrees of punishment in hell. There, there are some sins because, because, well, let me just show you something. Jesus was talking about Pharisees. He didn't like Pharisees because they tended to think their religion was more important than people. Here's what he says in Luke chapter 20 about the Pharisees, but they, the Pharisees cheat widows and steal their houses and then try to make themselves look good by saying long prayers. And now help me out here. They will receive a what? They will receive a what? Greater punishment. They were taking advantage of, of people the church is supposed to serve. In James, it says, pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So the very people that Jesus said you're supposed to reach out to, widows, they were taking advantage of, actually stealing their homes and, and doing all of this in the name of religion. And God evidently hates that type of hypocrisy. And the scripture says they will receive a what? greater punishment. Now, doesn't that imply that other sins will receive a lesser punishment? If he's saying they are going to have a greater punishment, there's other things that receive lesser punishment. Let me show you another instance where Jesus is talking to Pontius Pilate shortly before his death on the cross. This in John 19, 11, he says, you would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the what? Greater sin. 
So there's a greater punishment, there's a greater sin. That means there's lesser punishment, there's lesser sins. Um, let me give you an example of a greater sin. Sexual sin is a greater sin. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, verse 18 run from sexual sin now look at this this is this is very straightforward no other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body he says run from it you are not strong enough to endure temptation i'm just telling you that the other day I had somebody knock on the door out here and, and we keep the, the building locked when I'm the only person here. If Janie's here, sometimes we'll open it and, and then, um, or if somebody else is in the building with me, but we have a policy at the church that we cannot, no one can be in the building with someone of the opposite sex. It doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter how old you are. doesn't matter how spiritual you are. That's our policy. Well, this lady knocks on the door. I don't know it's a lady. And so I actually walk outside and she's down here knocking on this door too. And, and so I said, hi, can I help you? She comes up. It's hot. It's hundred degrees outside. And she says to me, she said, can we we go inside where it's cool. And I said, no, ma'am, we can't. And she goes, what? And I said, I'm sorry. We have a church policy that says I cannot be in the building with somebody of the opposite sex. She goes, well, you're a preacher. And I said, yes, ma'am, that's to protect me as well as to protect you. So we can stand here in the shade and I'll talk to you. But she was all upset that I wouldn't bring her in the building. I said, I'm sorry. I agree with this policy. Then, then, you know, she needed some stuff. So I took her down and got her some gas and we gave her some groceries and then she wanted cash and she got mad at me that she didn't, that I didn't give her cash. And I said, I'm sorry, we have a policy at the church. We don't give cash. We will, we'll give you groceries. We'll fill up your car with, and she goes, well, what about you personally? And I said, personally, I have a policy. I don't give anybody cash. I will buy stuff, put it somewhere. You know, I'm not giving you cash because, because I've been down the road many times, had people, anyway, you understand what I'm saying? Here's the point. The point is you need to have boundaries to protect you from sexual sin because no other sin is like sexual sin. That's what the scripture says. And it says, run. Don't you think you can stand there and you can endure it? It says, run, forest, Run. Cause, cause you're not going to be tempted when you're out of breath. I'm just telling you, when you're running down the road, you're not going to be tempted sexually. It's great, great exercise. By the way, if you want great exercise, you need to come to preteen retreat next year and be one of the workers. Dude, I could not even sing the songs. You saw Rachel and Hannah up here just going, I'd be, I'd be clapping, jumping up and down, breathing hard. Almost threw up once. I thought that wasn't very spiritual. So I quit jumping. The point is don't try you're not strong enough. You're not strong enough to go to some of these movies that you go to. I'm sorry. You're not strong enough to be with somebody of the opposite sex that you're not related to, that you're not married to. You're not strong enough. The lie from hell is you are. You're not. Jump down off the soapbox. Let me, let me give you some, some twists. We've been talking about this whole twisted series. Let me give you some twists that, that people believe in this world. What you do matters here, but it also matters for eternity. Here are three misconceptions or three twists, some, some lies from the devil. Misperception number one is I'm not a bad person. You ever heard that? According to scripture, you are. All have sinned. You saw at the end of the, the documentary, Romans 6, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In, in Romans, it also says there is no one who is righteous. No, not one. It's why we, we talked about this in preteen retreat. It was, they were talk, talking about putting on the full armor of God. The breastplate of righteousness is something you do not own. You get it from God and you put it on. You put on his righteousness. That's how you get to go into heaven. You are not a good person. Welcome to church. Number two, 
Here's another misconception, another twist from hell. All sins are the same. We just read that they're not. There are greater sins. There's greater punishment. Now, yes, sin, any sin can keep you out of heaven if it's not forgiven, but not all sins are the same. The scripture is very clear about that. Here, let me give you a third misperception or twist. Since I've already done it, whatever sin it is that keep, that Satan keeps bringing up to you, since I've already done it, I might as well do it again. Since I'm no longer a virgin, I might as well just keep having sex outside of marriage. That's a, that's a lie from hell. Since, since I've already done drugs, I might as well do drugs again. Since I've already cheated and I didn't get caught, maybe I should just cheat again. I've already done it. Why don't I just do it again? That's a lie from hell. And evidently, this kind of thinking of I might as well just keep on doing what I've already done. Evidently, it's been around as long as people have been around. Because 2,000 years ago, in the book of Romans, Paul says this to the Roman people. Should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Because here's the mindset of the time. The twisted thinking of the time was, if if God's going to forgive us anyway, let's have a good time. And he's going to forgive us. The mindset was, this is, this is how twisted it gets. Well, we know that God loves to pour out grace on sinners. So let's help him out by being really good sinners so that he can have more opportunity to pour out grace. You see how screwed up that thinking is? Let me give you something real quick. God offers forgiveness to you, but he's not required to forgive an unrepentant heart. Scripture's real clear. God opposes the proud. Opposes means he fights against the proud. You're on the opposite side if you're proud. So you don't just walk into the presence of God and say, forgive me. You don't understand what a king is, especially the king of kings. The Bible says he gives grace to the humble. So the only people who get forgiveness are the ones who are humble and ask for it humbly. These people are saying, shouldn't we just keep on sinning? Look what he says. Verse two, of course not. The actual literal translation is God forbid. My my seminary professor took Romans from uh, one of my professors. He said, this is the closest that Paul ever came to cussing in the scripture. God forbid that we should keep on sinning. Look, Look what he says. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that you were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism? We joined him in his death. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Why, if you have died to something, if you've been united with Christ, why would you continue to do things that hurt your heavenly Father? Why would you continue to do things that hurt you? Why would you continue to do things to people who love you if you've died to those things? Doesn't make any sense. See, spiritual maturity is not knowing the right thing to do. Spiritual maturity is doing it. Look what Jesus said about obedience. He said, if you love me, obey my commandments. Love in the kingdom of God equals obedience. So here's here's the last thing I put on your listening guide. Obedience matters more than knowledge. I'm sick to death of people pretending they're spiritually mature because they know a few stories. But they never live it out in front of anybody. If you read in Revelation, Jesus says to one of the churches, 
because you're not hot or cold. You make me want to vomit. He said, either get on fire for the Lord or get out. Don't do this middle of the road trash because it doesn't benefit the kingdom actually hurts the kingdom. You see the problem in most of our churches is we're more educated than we are obedient. We know more than we're doing. Now, do you know who the most miserable people in the world are? It's not non-Christians. It's Christians who continue to live in sin. They're miserable. And see, sin grows best in the dark, so they think they're playing this game. They're putting on masks, they're pretending, and they're miserable. They come to church, they're miserable. Some of you used to be really close to God and you're not now. You want to know why? It's because you've got unconfessed sin in your life and it's making you miserable. And some of you are going, it's not that big a deal. And who are you to judge me? The Bible says that those in the church are supposed to judge those in the church, not the outside. We're supposed to judge those in the church. When you take the log out of your eye, then you'll be able to take the speck out of your brother or sister's eye. You say, it's not a big deal. Well, according to scripture, your sin is a very big deal because it costs Jesus Christ his life. So some of you need to be set free today. Some of you need to come to a, a, a come to Jesus moment today. So let's just bow our heads and let's give you the opportunity. If you've never asked Christ into your life, you can do like Sean did. And you just ask God to forgive you of your sins and be the leader of your life. That's how we say it around here. So just in your heart, if you, if you don't know where you would go tonight, if you were to die, you don't know if you're going to heaven or hell, you just pray this. God, I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive my sins and lead my life. If you pray that and mean it, the Bible says your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That means you get to go into heaven. You, you just were adopted into God's family. Now, a lot of you are, are farther from God than you want to be. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will make you pay more than you want to pay. And scripture is real clear. The way you get back to God is you confess your sins. And then he is faithful to forgive us of our sins. Get out of the darkness. Get into the light. If we, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with him. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So it's time to confess your sin. You just tell him whatever it is you're struggling with. And you ask him to give you the power to overcome it. Now, let me just say this. Keep your eyes closed and the heads bowed. You get forgiveness by asking God for, for forgiveness. You get healing by finding somebody that you can trust who's a Christian. And you share. James is real clear. It says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The reason some of you aren't healed from your stuff, from your junk, is because you think you've got a handle on it. You think it's not that big a deal. The Bible says it's a very big deal. You need to find one Christian that you can trust, that you can confess to, and then ask them to walk with you through healing. Father, change us into the people you want us to be. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.